Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy. Well, as they say in politics, events, dear boy, events. And as this uh, podcast interview was recorded yesterday with the then Justice Secretary, Hamza Yousaf, um, the issues that we explored were clearly around immigration and the protests at Kenmure Street, but then also the awful scenes following the Rangers match on Saturday in Glasgow. Humza Yousaf is now the new Health Secretary and Keith Brown has taken over the Justice Brief. But those issues will persist. So perhaps this is just good homework for Keith Brown and this one is especially for him. So, Hamza, we'd originally planned to focus on Gaza uh, in this podcast and your family connections to what's happening out there. But as they say, events, dear boy, events. Um, and so where well, we will come back to that very painful and ongoing episode later, let's look at hostilities that are a little closer to home. Mm. I think it's fair to say that in the space of a few days last week, we saw the best and the worst of Glasgow. Yeah. So for ease, let's start with events of last Thursday and the attempted removal of two men by UK Borders Forces van. Mm. So MSPs were being sworn in. It was Eid. Uh, this was in the First Minister's constituency and one with a large Muslim community, and there was a COVID spike in the area. You were quoted as saying afterwards that I abhor Home Office immigration policy at the best of times, but to have taken the action they have today is at best completely reckless and at worst intended to provoke. Do you really think that the timing was deliberately designed by the UK government to be provocative? I do. I do. I mean, I've reflected a lot on it and, and tried to way up whether it was just incompetence cock up or was it you know was it deliberate and provocative and and and, and i think you know and I'm, I'm not somebody who engages in, in conspiracy in fact i do my best to bat them away most of the time but it, it feels very very difficult to just explain it as coincidence you know the heart of the first minister's constituency you know on a day that they must have known the first minister and other msps would have been otherwise engaged but also, even if I just dismissed all of that, they must have known, anybody with any sense would know that it, Paul Shields is the heart of the Muslim community in Scotland. You know, synonymous, it has been for decades. And they would have also known it would have been the day of Eid. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, you know, these are not, you know, these, these are people who are, you know, they have to do a community impact assessment by its very definition of what they do. So to have done that and... You know, when I spoke to to one individual in the Home Office, you know, he said, "Yeah, we 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 have an idea that, um, or we had a sense that it would provoke some kind of reaction, um, or that there would be some not reaction." So he said, "You know, th- there would be protest." Well, that alone should have given you pause for thought. A day after the first minister said there's been a spike or surge in cases in Glasgow, and it's linked to the south side of Glasgow. So yeah, no, I I think it was deliberate, deliberate, deliberately provocative. 
And why? Why would they be deliberately provocative? What's well, the point? Well, the, the point is to, I think, impose, you know, and just flex the muscle, actually, just, you know, just to, so we know that they're in charge. Um, you know, to the extent that, I look, I've been, I've been a government minister now for just shy of 10 years. I suppose tomorrow's the reshuffle, so see if that continues. <laughs> but, you know, I've been a government minister for, for near, just, just under 10 years, nine years. And for all my differences with UK government departments I've had over many different government portfolios that I've held, I've always been able to engage with UK government, always. And they've always put a minister up, you know, even if it's just there to listen to what I've got to say. But last Thursday was really different. You know, last Thursday, they deliberately gave me a civil servant. And then it was only when the first minister's office reached into UK government at a really senior level. And even then, to talk to our first minister of Scotland and give us the most junior minister possible. You know, a pus, you know, a private undersecretary of, of, of state, you know, the most junior minister possible. Um, you know, that was, that, that to me shows the disrespect. And that's why I think it's a, it's a power play by the UK government um, and the, when it comes to immigration. I don't think other, other UK government departments would behave in the way that the Home Office chose to behave last Thursday. I mean, in terms of that power play, do you think had the SNP not won the election in the way they won it, do you think that the events of that day might not have happened? To answer your question, um, I, I also don't think that's a coincidence. You know, I think the fact that the SNP won the election, um, won it uh, so comprehensively, um, again, going into the heart of the first minister's constituency, I think was an attempt to, as I say, flex the muscles and, and show some dominance. Now, you know, they chose the wrong city, I think, to and the wrong neighbourhood to try to flex your muscles um, and then underestimated the community um, you know, grassroots community reaction that there would be. Um, but yes, to answer your question, I think that probably played a part in their calculations. How did that make both you and the First Minister feel? I mean, you know, I was sitting watching it from the office in Edinburgh. Um, I'll come on to how I know it was very sp spontaneous in a minute. But, you know, I was sitting watching you all being sworn in. I just wonder, how did you first become aware and, and how did it make you feel? So, um, as I mentioned to you in our in our preamble before we started recording, I, I actually don't spend as much time on Twitter as as, as one might <laughs> expect uh, going by my tweets. Uh, but it was actually the first minister that brought it to my attention. She saw a tweet about just when 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 I think the initial protesters, you know, small group uh, of of maybe seven, eight, you know, half a dozen, I think maybe or, or thereabouts, took to the streets, um, uh, and she'd asked me whether or not um, whether or not I been aware of the incident at that point i hadn't and obviously decided to speak to to local police to get a better understanding of it how did it make me feel um in the first instance gravely worried because i i think both the first minister and i understood that this had the potential to to grow in terms of numbers and obviously we'd just been at glasgow central mosque first minister myself and asawar all because we were trying to communicate the message that in the south side of Glasgow, particularly and amongst uh, potentially the South Asian community, there was an upsurge in cases linked to the Indian variant uh, and that this could have an impact on that. Uh, and actually, you know, for the entire day, the reason to try to get a resolution to this in all of our discussions with the Home Office was just trying to appeal to them on grounds of public health. You know, we were never going to agree on asylum and immigration policy with the UK government. You know, just accept that. Um, for now, and, and trying to say to them, look, there's a public health imperative here. 
the only way this is going to get resolved is if you release those two individuals. Those protesters are not going to just decide to get up and go uh, and go home. Um, and, and that's why we did our best for hours and hours to try to get the Home Office to abandon that operation. So, you know, actually, my, my first inst instinct was, was was grave concern because there's a, there's a reason why we tell people not to gather um, because of the, the, the public health imperative. Uh, I, I won't lie. Um, you know, there's also a sense of pride, you know, that, that people of Glasgow are choosing to stand up. And look, I was born in Pollock Shields. I was born in Leslie Street. Anybody who knows Pollock Shields, it's, it's around the corner from, from Kenmuir Street. It's, it's uh, you know, Square Park, as it's still known. It sits in the heart of that area of Pollock Shields. I spent, uh, and have spent much of my, did spend much of my childhood uh, growing up in and around Square Park. So, you know, the area is one that is well known to me. My dad has, has his business a stone throw away from there. And it's had it for about 40 years in Pollock Shields. So, so it's an area that, that, that is very close to my heart. Uh, and always has been, um, and 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 in one sense, uh, you know, a great source of pride. And if it wasn't for COVID, frankly, I would have, you know, got myself over to Kenmuir Street and protested um, alongside the individuals that were there. Do you think? Um, I mean, immigration is not devolved, and given what you've just said, and and also things you said at the time, is it your place as Justice Secretary to basically delegitimise the UK rule of law? Yes, actually, I think people look to me for ensuring that I and the Scottish government are the voices of justice. And, you know, for me, there is no justice in uh, force, forcible removal uh, and dawn raid and an asylum and immigration policy that is designed to create a hostile environment by its very definition. So just because something may well be within the UK government's rule of law, that doesn't stop me from protesting. Now, what I don't say and, and, and what I wouldn't do is uh, suggest that any illegal activity uh, takes place from protesters, and they didn't do that. They behaved, um, you know, other than gathering, which, which again, I, I stress, I would not, I would rather prefer people, you know, do not gather regardless of what the cause is. But um, other than peaceful protests, you know, nobody engaged in, in, in illegal activity. And ultimately, the police resolved it through legal means, through powers that they had that legally belonged to them in the interest of public order. I think that's an interesting point, that people are perhaps unclear as to why Police Scotland is involved in, in yeah. if you like, aiding and abetting um, a system that perhaps our own government don't agree with. Yeah, I think it's a good question. And it's a, it's a difficult one, I think, if you're not, you know, uh, completely, you know, au with. Uh, all things devolved and reserved but essentially you know, Police Scotland will not routinely attend with UK Border Agency when it comes to uh, a, forced, a forced removal what they may do is if they're called out because you know this happens at times the individual who's going to be removed threatens self-harm for example and so then police are called or because the individual might turn violent and therefore they're there to protect the UKBA staff or as we saw on Thursday there is a protest developing and a demonstration you know an individual literally locked themselves to the underside of the, the UKBA van uh, and therefore police are called because there could be a concern around order disorder and public safety so then police Scotland would attend an event an incident like that just as they would attend any potential protest incident uh, and that's essentially what happened I, I agree the optics can be sometimes difficult it's why police scotland put out a statement quite early on to say we don't assist with forcible removals you know we're there to maintain the peace and the order and ultimately that's actually why they took the decision you know around about five o'clock or just before then to release the two individuals because it was done in the name and the interest of public order and safety i mean the the protest 
protesters have been described as a mob in a very pejorative sense by some. I know how spontaneous it was because, in fact, one of my journalists, Andrew Learmonth, had been at the hospital with his daughter and was on his way home. So he just happened to bump into it all happening. What do you think that it said about us as Scots that that is the way we responded to that immigration process? Well, first of all, I think it's a disgrace uh, for people to describe those individuals as a mob. Uh, and that description I've only ever seen from conservatives. Um, you know, whether it's Murdo Fraser uh, who used it in a, in a tweet quoting an article from um, was it Brian Monteith uh, that, that, that used that term right the way through to the Home Office, of course, who used the term mob rule. I think it's a disgrace. And anybody who understands the people of Glasgow, you know, people make Glasgow is, is, is a great slogan, but it's so much more than a slogan. The reason why people like it is because it really does encapsulate the spirit of the city. And uh, for me, as I say, you know, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, we were urging people not to gather because of the public health emergency, I'm not in the slightest surprised at the reaction from the people of Glasgow, and particularly from the people of Pollock Shields. Again, it's an area I know and, and, and know extremely, extremely well. And I've been in protests in Pollock Shields when Chris Donald got murdered. Um, you know, I remember the organic groundswell um, that was that was created to take on racism and, and the BNP thugs who tried to exploit that murder. Uh, but also, you know, appealing to the then MP at the time, Mohammed Sawar, to do what he could to try to bring these, um, you know, uh, murderers back from Pakistan. And, and in fair play to Mohammed Sawar, he 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 managed that, and, and absolute credit to him. So it doesn't surprise me at all, and it fills me with great pride that the people, you know, grassroots, you know, you know, people are people people are willing to to come together to stand up to what they see as 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 an injustice. It doesn't surprise me in the slightest. I suppose as well, it, it comes just a week after we saw the First Minister basically standing her ground um, against the fascist mm. candidate that was standing against her in the election. But do you think there's a kind of a Scottish exceptionalism in all of this, that we think we're fairer, we're not racist, that we could do things better when actually we're not having to make these hard decisions? I'm not, I'm not sure there is, because if you'd asked me that question maybe five years ago, or maybe even longer, I might have said, yeah, I think that exists. But I think there's been a genuinely very honest conversation um, about race, uh, particularly in the light of the Black Lives Matters movement. But, you know, in fairness to Anna Sarwar too, I mean, I think he's done a lot on this issue and, and, and has helped to force a debate that I think Scotland probably needed to have. Um, you know, I've, I've spoken before that I've been quite inspired by by the fact that he initially called out his own political party for some of the racism that he faced. I think that's quite difficult to do. So, so no, I, I, I think now there's genuinely an understanding in Scotland that we are not, you know, as much as we'd like to be all Jock Tamsin's bairns, we, we are not, uh, you know, utopian society by any stretch of the imagination. There's um, deep-rooted racism, structural, and of course, the events of the weekend, if anything. Um, remind us that uh, we have some serious problems around uh, hatred based on people's religion or ethnicity. Yeah. I mean, in terms of migration, and yeah. if people are here illegally, which we were told that these men were, they do need to be dealt with. So how would you deal with it differently? So I wouldn't put them in detention centres. I wouldn't dawn raid them uh, in, in, in the morning, at three, four in the morning, uh, and cause that kind of level of, of trauma. But also for these individuals, without going... Too much, into too much detail of the case, having spoken to Amar Anwar, who was um, acting uh, for them on, on the day, 
my understanding is that those two individuals were just about to lodge a fresh claim. So they hadn't exhausted in, in its entirety the, the asylum process. Um, but I think the Home Office caught wind that there may be a, a fresh application coming coming through and then decided to take the action they took. So, you know, there's plenty of examples of countries that have an asylum and immigration policy uh, that is far more dignified and compassionate than the one that we have. And I think we should emulate those. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, of course, if people, you know, exhaust that process, then you clearly have to find a way to, to, to deal manage with that. But the way the UK government has done it, and it's not just, it's not just this one incident, it is the entire system that is designed and based on suspicion. Ask anybody, and I, I do this regularly as a constituency MSP, regularly have people come into my office who've been through the asylum process for not just years, but decades, and to then forcibly remove them from their homes and communities uh, and their children often, um, and, and send them back. I mean, these individuals are going to be sent back to India. You know, it's a COVID hotspot of the world at the moment. Uh, it just makes no sense. So, yeah, you're right. And you've got to make tough decisions, I don't doubt, in any immigration um, you know, process that you, that you have. But it can be one that can be rooted far more in dignity than the one that, the, that we currently have. I mean, it's probably rhetorical given what you've said, but did it matter to you whether you knew about the personal circumstances of those two men at the heart of this at the time, or did that matter? Was it more about the handling of it? I mean, the, hand, the handling was a big issue. I think, you know, the, the one thing I'm always careful to check in these matters, and I did check as far as I possibly could, uh, the Home Office weren't um, too forthcoming with details, was that there was no you know, major public safety issue. So these two individuals were not accused of a serious crime. If they had been, then I would expect them to be dealt with, you know, in a, in a, in a more robust manner. But I was told this was an absolute run-of-the-mill routine, you know, overstaying case of, of people overstaying on, 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 on a visa, uh, but also told by their lawyers that actually there's a fresh application due to, to go in to, with fresh evidence. So, yeah, the, the, only, the only thing that might have kind of changed my perspective on things with if these individuals were, were deemed an absolute danger to society in some way, shape or form. I mean, to be honest, if that had been the case, surely you'd have expected the immigration people to have dealt with it much sooner and quicker. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And, and, and you know, in, in a much better way as well. And to have communicated that fact. Yeah. I mean, you've said already, and it's true, that hostile environment is, is such a hellish phrase when it comes to dealing with people and people's lives. And it is embedded in that UK approach to immigration. What phrase would you like associated with what would out be our approach to immigration policy? I think a welcoming approach. Yeah, you know, Scotland is not full up. <laughs> Far from it. That doesn't mean there aren't issues around, you know, you've got to be conscious of you know, public service, et cetera, et cetera. But just take one example. You know, talk to any MSP or MP and they will tell you of people who've been in the asylum process for over a decade. In fact, I think these two individuals, again, without yeah. going into too much detail into the circumstances, my understanding is they've been in the process for much longer than a decade. Mm -hmm. And they're barred from working. Crazy. When they want to yeah. work, they've got skills, they want to pay tax, they want to contribute. And we've seen with refugees, for example, the Syrian refugees that have come, so many heartening stories of bakeries opening in the Isle of Butte, you know, of uh, one of them opening a car garage in Glasgow, one family that I know, others going on to teaching and so on and so forth. So, you know, the fact that we have a system that completely disempowers the individual, doesn't recognize their trauma, as I say, is rooted in suspicion, is the exact opposite of a system I'd like. So I'd like one that is welcoming. Um, that, is, that, that would be my message. 
And on a personal level, watching that and knowing that your family came in as immigrants, how how does that feel? I just find it you know, so heartbreaking because I know how much immigrants have contributed because I see it my own father and my grandfather and grandmother uh, on both paternal and maternal sides when they've been alive. You know, they are complete grafters and I've been the beneficiary of that. I mean, you know, I have privilege. You know, I've got no concern about saying that. And I think it's important you all and we all recognize the privilege we have. You know, and the privilege I have, you know, growing up in Newton Mearns, you know, when we moved there from Pollock Shields, being sent to private school, you know, these are, this is huge privilege that's been afforded to me on the back of the hard graft of immigrants in my family. You know, my grandfather coming here with barely any money on my paternal, on the paternal side, working in the Singer sewing machine factory in Clyde Bank, you know, before saving up enough money to open up his first shop and so on. My, 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 my maternal grandfather, you know, after some difficult years in, 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 in Kenya and then going to Pakistan, came here again with barely any money and was a bus conductor for decades in the, in the Glasgow Corporation. And because of their graft and then my father and mother's graft, you know, I got the life that, that I'm so blessed to have. So it's totally heartbreaking to me that, you know, we see people who are wanting to work, wanting to contribute, wanting to make Scotland their home, as my parents and grandparents did, being treated in this way. And particularly for those that have suffered such trauma, you know, we have a number of, as you'd imagine, asylum seekers that come in from Syria, from, from, from Afghanistan, from Iraq. You know, the trauma that they've suffered is, is, is unimaginable. And do you think that even people like your grandparents and your parents would have spent their lives worrying about what might happen? Um, not, not in the sense that they expected a call from the UKBA. Um, you know, in fact, you know, this, this is how perverse our immigration system is, that because if you went back to the days, you know, when my parents came in, when, you know, there was a Conservative government, they were actively encouraging my grandparents to come to the country. There was a shortage of the type of labour that they needed. And so they wanted people in the bus, buses. That's why my grandfather, that's why the late Bashir Ahmed that I was lucky to work with, that's why they came over here to, to, to fill those jobs in the buses. You know, and, 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 and similar, other, other jobs that required quite hard manual graft, as I said, my, my, my paternal grandfather being in the Singer sewing machine factory. You know, they were actively encouraged, so they didn't really have any concern about, you know, border force turning up at the door and asking for the papers and removing them after you know, work visa and overstaying, they were really grateful for the opportunity and how perverse that we've gone from that to a system that, as we keep describing it, that has created such a hostile environment um, that, you know, I'm, you know, to one extent, I'm astounded immigrants still wish to try to take a chance in the UK because they are met with so many barriers. So how can you stop what happened last week happening again in Scotland? So I think a few things, I'm quite keen to build some sort of progressive alliance and I've reached out to, to Scottish Labour in this regard um, and the Greens, um, I've not heard back from Scottish Labour yet, but I expect them to respond relatively positively. We may not entirely agree on the way forward. You know, I, I, I obviously would like those powers devolved ASAP to the Scottish Parliament, you know, and prior, prior to an independence referendum winning that independence referendum. So I would be... I would want that those 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 powers devolved. I, I don't know what Labour's position is on that. I'm, I'm trying to kind of figure it out and, and try to bring them into a conversation. But even if that's not, even if that's not their 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 uh, belief, let's be honest. Um, the UK government's not going to turn around and devolve asylum and immigration policy uh, today, tomorrow, 
um, or anytime soon. So what can we do? Uh, I spoke to Scottish Refugee Council and they've suggested three things that we try to push with the UK government to say, okay, you're not going to, if you're not going to devolve, then first of all, require the express consent of Police Scotland in terms of order, public order and safety, whether or not a forcible removal can happen. Uh, make sure a forcible, commit to a forcible removal only happening if there's a threat to public safety. So if those individuals have been involved in criminality and end on raids because of the trauma that they clearly um, foist upon the individual. So, you know, th th those are three asks which I, I consider to be very reasonable. And I think, you know, from the groundswell, you know, groundswell of, of, of grassroots activity we saw on Thursday, right the way through to the political um, will and political support that we can bring as politicians cross party, you know, we've just got to try to exert as much pressure as we possibly can. Well, let's move on to another issue, which is sure. uh, pr perhaps steeped in white male privilege as well, but um, we can come on to that. The protests, um, the riots, if you like, after the football match in Glasgow on Saturday, just absolutely horrendous. But before we go into the, the scenes, do you think you gave the green light to Rangers fans to gather almost as a kind of tacit response to how you'd reacted to Kenmuir Street? No, and, and look, the two for me are simply not comparable. But when it came to Kenmuir Street, I was asked an urgent question on Friday about the Kenmuir Street issue. And I think it was Alex Cole Hamilton that asked the question about gatherings. And I made it abundantly clear, as I think I've probably done in this podcast, that regardless of how virtuous the cause is, we're asking people not to gather because of the public health imperative. So that's one issue I've been consistent in that. But secondly, we cannot compare a protest against the forcible removal of two individuals to a celebration of a football trophy. As significant as that is, I mean, I, I take my hats off to Rangers. It's been <clears throat> an incredible season. I say this as, as people know, as a, as a fan who supports, you know, the, the very other team, um, you know, as a football man, and somebody who loves football, plays it, or well, been a while since I played it right now, played it, um, watches it. Um, you know, it's an incredible season from Rangers. Invincible, dominating, <clears throat> dominated, and, 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 and really successful in Europe. So I get the urge to want to celebrate. But um, to, again, take to the streets in those numbers doesn't just put those individuals at risk, but puts entire communities at risk. But even, it's not even the gathering, though that, that concern me and, and, and upset me and, and really gives me concern about the cases, cases in Glasgow and what effect this will have on it. It was the then ugly scenes we saw towards the end of, of the evening, which included assaults on our police officers, which included fighting between groups of fans, which was, you know, various examples of really vile anti-Catholic bigotry and anti-Irish bigotry. Um, just as depressing, frankly, um, mm -hmm. and I just don't understand it from a from a group of fans who who are celebrating how it descends into that type of chaos. It is beyond me. I mean, you know, football is beyond me, to be honest. But but what we saw on Saturday just horrified me too. And I, is it more about? Less to do with football and more to do with alcohol, ignorance, toxic masculinity, young men looking for a tribe, inequality, all those things. I'm I sure mean, those are all, yeah. <laughs> and they're also all issues that you could deal with as a government. 
I'm sure, I'm sure that's that, that's all true. But look, why do I not so see those scenes when you know there's a, a rugby victory, or there's a cricket victory, or there's you know Scotland did well on the national you know, the national team you know when we beat Serbia and qualified for the Euros. Why did I not see? You know, a tartan army taking to the streets and battering police officers and so on. So, uh, you know, it's not, it's not, I think it's unfair to just call it just a football problem because, to be honest, there's a lot of clubs that win a lot of titles, that win a lot of trophies and don't take to the streets and do what they do. There is a problem we've seen with a certain group of fans. You know, it's not the first time we've seen Rangers fans create disorder in George Square. In fact, it's happened twice over the last two months. And I think football clubs where that does happen have to take a really serious look at themselves. And I called, look, I called out Celtic fans when they um, began to to create disorder at Celtic Park. Uh, it was earlier in the year and, and and assaulted police officers. I was very firm in my condemnation of that. So actually, you know, regardless of what people may think, I, I, you know, I'm going to call it out regardless of whether your strip is is green or blue. But I think you know, Rangers Football Club really have to take a long, hard look at those fans, those risk groups and say, well, you know, if they're going to continue to tarnish our name, we better take some really strict action to make sure they don't set foot in Ibrox ever again. And maybe that will dissuade some of the more riskier elements to engage in that type of behaviour. What what can they do? I mean, there was talk about strict liability before and the teams being responsible for their fans. But I mean, in reality, what can they do? And what? how can you enforce them doing anything? So if I'm a diehard fan, you know, the biggest punishment the club can make out is not letting me come to watch another game. You know, I have, you know, court fine, you'll pay it. I'll find a few hundred quid, you'll pay it. It's not going to, it's not probably going to deter you as much as a lifetime ban from Ibrox. So I think they just have to make an example of some of the real bigwigs. You know, they, they, I'm sure Rangers Football Club and their security have a good idea of who are, you know, who are the people who orchestrate um, some of this violence and thuggery and anti-Catholic bigotry. And if they do, then they should really make examples of those individuals and say, you're not welcome to, to, to Ibrox ever again or to step foot in the club. That, to me, would be the biggest deterrent. But look, strict liability should be looked at. Um, you know, an independent regulator, potentially, uh, is what they're proposing in the English game. Well, well let's look at that and let's look at the plans and, and see if... Because if, 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 if football and some clubs cannot, you know, police themselves and, and, and act appropriately... Uh, to dissuade this type of uh, disorder, then, then perhaps we need to look at others that can do that. I mean, James Dornan, your colleague, tried and and to deal with sectarianism, and he accused other politicians of being too scared to get involved. Is that true? Yeah, I think at the time it was. I think it was true, actually. Yeah, I think at the time he did, and 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 various lobby forces descended upon other MSPs, and and I think James was thwarted, and and um, you know. I, I think even I regret the fact that we've not been as strong as we possibly could have been on, on, on this issue. But look, strict liability isn't the magic wand necessarily. I think, you know, we should always keep that on the table and continue to see if it's an option that needs pursued. But as I said, I think some very simple actions from football clubs can make a big, big difference. As I say, you know, lifetime bans that are enforceable. You know, for me, that would be, you know, if I, again, was a diehard fan, that would be the biggest punishment that I could possibly suffer. You know, I mean, I'm from the East Coast, so sectarianism was something that was completely new to me until I actually worked in Glasgow as, as an adult. And it's a very specific issue for the West Coast of Scotland. Yeah, We've got a parliament that's there to deal with Scottish 
problems. Why haven't we dealt with this? Yeah, it's a, it's not just a good question, but you know, uh, a fair criticism uh, as well. Though, though I would just take exception. I don't think it is a West Coast problem. I mean, I think it's worse than the West Coast. But anybody who's been to a Hearts Hibs match will tell you that it's not just a West Coast problem. You know, I've been there um, at, at that match before. Um, I've been to Celtic Hearts match um before and and yeah it's definitely not just a, a west coast problem uh but by any stretch of the imagination i guess i'm thinking more of you know i'm from the east east so yeah. when you look at you know perthshire and the northeast coast it, it, it was just something i wasn't even aware of no sure sure i, I accept i accept the general point <clears throat> i think um why has there been a failure to deal with it so part of me gets frustrated at the fact that we don't really call it out for what it is so sectarianism can be a. Uh, uh, an umbrella term that just captures so much and i think we do ourselves in the communities that we serve a disservice by not just calling it out so where it's anti-protestant anti you know british then we should call that out but clearly what we saw on the weekend was anti-catholic and anti-irish you know I've, I've, I've woken up today as a muslim who has no irish descendancy um being called i'll just read you the messages actually mm. um and forgive the language uh but i hope you'll understand it should have heard important. it before. yeah so i woke up this morning and the instagram message says um dry your eyes you fenian fucking prick uh glasgow is blue so fenian uh, and then this other message from instagram here and these people are not anonymous by the way they've given their names and details I'm <laughs> right idiots I, yeah absolutely because i'll be reporting both of these things. um this one says you're dirty tarrier rat you don't get a say in anything about our club our country you dirty tag cunt rotten hell you fenian scumbag so you know uh th that's anti-irish and anti-catholic and, and i'm somebody who who you know <laughs> is neither catholic nor Irish, but you know I will call out that hatred regardless of who uh, is the intended recipient and target. So I think part of it is acknowledging what the problem is, and then I think we've just got to, you know, be serious about the punishments that we're meting out to people. I think you know there's not enough of a deterrent. I think people just accept and shrug their shoulders and say, "Oh, part of the game," or you know, "What do you expect in a Rangers Celtic match?" But I think we actually have to address the, the the real root causes of it and get into the heart of those very difficult communities where this stuff is rife. Um, but also just think, as I say, you know, if, if, if clubs took a really hardline stance on those who engage in this type of behaviour, you know, in the terraces, in the stadiums, then, then that might go a long way in helping us. What are the root causes, do you think? So I think the root causes is just, you know, in, like any type of racism or hatred, it's absolute and ingrained fear of the other and your lifestyle. So if you've got a particular lifestyle upbringing, you've enjoyed privilege from that or status from that, anything that threatens that, the enemy that threatens that, you know, you're going to, 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 to rail against. Um, and I think that's what, what, what is at the heart of it. They've been taught that, you know, the Irish, the Catholics, you know, they are your, 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 literally your enemy and, and they will disturb your status quo. They want to get rid of your queen. They want to get rid of your flag. They want to break up your union. They want to do this, that, and the other. And that just ingrains a fear. Um, and, and, and people mix it up as, as, as you spoke before, it's a whole intersectionality between race, religion, football, etc etc so um looks organizations do some great work on this whether it's show racism the red, red card and i've been to the workshops in my constituency no by mouth you know sense over sectarianism these guys have done some really really good work 
Um, again, I think from a government perspective, we need to maybe work with them a bit closer and say, well, actually, how do we get into the heart of the really difficult communities where this is rife and really challenge this head on? But also when you look at what happened on Saturday, if you'd removed alcohol yeah. from the equation, I mean, clearly there's a hatred that needs to be dealt with anyway, but alcohol was clearly at the heart of a lot of what went on as well. Sure, but yeah. You know, and you're not allowed to drink in public in Glasgow and look at them all. So you're going to get a headline that the Muslim minister uh, argues for <laughs> prohibition. <laughs> um, Teetotal tea Muslim minister uh, calls for prohibition. No, uh, look, alcohol is at the heart and the root of a lot of this. And, and in my conversations with organisations like the Violence Reduction Unit or Medics Against Violence, you know, both of whom do great work, they you know, have said to me recently that, look, the next frontier is tackling the over-provision of alcohol whether it's in mm -hmm. pubs, whether it's in off-licenses, supermarkets, you have, or we have in Scotland, an over-provision of alcohol that is too freely and readily available. And yeah, I, I agree with you, that culture um, of, 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 of drinking and using that as a mitigating circumstance when it isn't, it's not a mitigating circumstance. You know, you choose to drink knowing the effects it will have on you. Um, it's not a mitigating circumstance. So yeah, no, I agree with your general assessment. I think there's an issue here that we still need to deal with in terms of Scotland's relationship with alcohol. I mean, I just have to say, looking at men kicking each other's heads in, mm, literally. I just, uh, abhorrent, absolutely abhorrent. Yeah, yeah. I, can't, I, I genuinely can't wrap my head around it, uh, especially because no. something that was a celebration. Exactly. What you would know, they do if they'd I lost? Mean, yeah, and, and what if, you know, okay, in, in a protest situation, I mean, again, I would, you would never justify or condone that type of behaviour. But I've seen, I've been involved in protests where, you know, the other side, you know, the far right have come and, mm -hmm. and, and suddenly there's a melee and, okay, you try to calm everybody down and, and, and sort it all out. Uh, and, and, and usually you're successful in that after, a, you know, a little bit of a fracas. This was a celebration. <laughs> That's why I just simply yeah, I can't, can't get my head around how it descended into that kind of chaos. Do you think, I mean, this is a catch-all, but do you think that independence would solve our problem with sectarianism? No, no. I think it'd be easy for me to say it would, but no, I don't, I don't think it's a magic wand. I don't think because you become independent, all your problems just disappear. Um, so not, 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 not at all, actually. Um, you know, I think it's important that we recognise that independence might give us a few, you know, additional powers and, and more significant powers. Um, but 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 I certainly wouldn't suggest that that would be a magic wand. So you know, when Scotland becomes independent, and and I'm pretty sure it'll be in the next few years, then we're going to have to uh, continue to redouble our efforts to tackle this problem. Wouldn't it be an idea for you, given um, some of the unionist propaganda that we also saw over the weekend, then to try and deal with the problem of sectarianism in your bid to try and get independence? Possibly, but um, you know we're not going to wait to deal with the issue of sectarianism before we give people another choice on, on an independence referendum. I think you know we set out a vision on where we think we can do things better, but we also have to be honest with independence. We have to acknowledge where where you know it's not going to be a magic bullet that's going to solve every single problem. And I think that's what people got frustrated at in 2014. If if there was ever any suggestion, and and, and look, I, I was careful to steer steer away from this, but any any suggestion that somehow you know an independent Scotland would be a land of milk and honey and you know, manna would fall from the sky and, you know, everything would be fine, you know, is one that I reject. I do think an independent Scotland, of course, uh, will, you know, will be able to tackle some of the deep-rooted inequality that exists, particularly once we get our hands on the full economic powers and financial powers that we need. Um, but I don't pretend for a minute that it is the, the answer to everything.
Was Saturday in any way a tipping point? I mean, is there anything mm. that you're going to bring forward around sectarianism, around football that might eradicate the issues that we saw on Saturday? So again, I've just stressed that what, what I think I saw, we saw on Saturday was was, was anti-Catholic and anti-Irish. I know it's, it, it, it's, I'm, not, I'm not saying there aren't issues with anti-British and anti-Protestant sentiment. I, I think we see that, but 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 I think you know we've got to just call out what we saw on the weekend was 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 you know anti-Catholic, anti-Irish, and I think we've got to get to the root of why that still exists. Um, you know, you could talk to colleagues um, who who perhaps um, not to be too. Uh, this is going to sound. Uh, terribly mean of me, but of your generation, uh, Mandy, that probably may have thought that. You saying I'm old? <laughs> no, just older <laughs> than me. Not old, but older than me. That I suspect in your time, in your generation, there would have been people who thought certain professions weren't for them because they were Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, journalism. Yeah, journalism. Uh, I'm I'm obviously dealing with the legal profession quite a lot. There's a number of people there that tell me that they never thought they could ever be a QC um, because they were Catholic or 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 even in the legal profession or a judge for that matter. So, so I think, um, yeah, no, I, th- I think we've got to. I think Saturday could be a tipping point, but only, you know, if we're ready to 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 really take the bull by the horns and make some what are quite difficult decisions. Now, does that become a little bit easier because we're in a parliament that is, you know, sixty four, sixty four, and presiding officers, uh, Alison Johnson now? So, does that does that become a little bit easier? Possibly, but I'd rather do this in a way that I take everybody with us, or if not everybody, because I think that's maybe a bit um, pie in the sky, but take as many people as I possibly can in this parliament with us on this journey. Is that a bit unfair about the 64-64 when we're talking about something like sectarianism, that there'll be colleagues in Labour and the Tories, Lib Dems, that will be as outraged at what happened on Saturday? Yeah. Yeah, surely I, everybody wants to tackle it. Yeah, sure. I mean, that, that, that is almost an obvious point, isn't it? Every, everybody wants to tackle it. But you've got to put your money where your mouth is. You know, if everybody wanted to tackle it, uh, Mandy, why did we not tackle it 20 years ago when the parliament you know, first came into evolution and being? But, you know, hmm. why did we not, you know, I, 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 I'm not saying that people don't want to see the end of sectarianism right across the benches. I don't doubt that whatever political party you're, you're, you're in, you want to see the end of it. But it's going to take some action that's going to be, frankly, one, unpopular. So let's take strict liability as one of the issues that you mentioned. You know, it's going to be unpopular amongst football clubs. I suspect a lot of football fans won't be particularly supportive of it either. So when an intense lobbying effort begins, then, you know, who stands with us? Um, uh, and, you know, it's issues like that. that there's not an easy, if, it, if there was an easy answer to this problem, we would have dealt with it decades ago. There's not an easy answer to it. So we've got to try to build a coalition. Uh, but look, I, I accept the premise, and, and I hope I make that very clear, that regardless of what political party you're, you're in, uh, I think that everybody wants to, to tackle this issue. We've just got to, be, got to accept that it's going to take bold and maybe at times unpopular action to do so. I suppose my point is that um, what is that action? You know, you are the Justice Secretary, at least this week. Um, you know, wh- what are the answers? So again, I think looking at, there's not a silver bullet. Anybody who suggests otherwise is is simply um, having you on. There's not one thing you can do to tackle this problem. Otherwise, again, somebody would have done that a long time ago. Um, but we have to get into the heart of the communities where we know this is rife. So it's easy to go into the fringes um, where this is not so much a problem. We have to get into the heart and get into kids at a young age <clears throat> and, and really have that honest conversation about what they're being taught, sometimes at home, by an older sibling, by a parent. That's part of it. I think we need to bring football into it again, as we've tried to do before. But, you know, instead of being 
um, instead of just talking about the problem incessantly, I think we need to say that these are the solutions. You need to come with us on this um, or present other solutions that are going to actually be effective and make a difference to fans on the ground. Um, so yeah, I think I think there's a whole host of things that we have to now explore um, and, and look at, but there's not an easy answer to it. But as much of it as we can do as as, as a kind of coalition, um, and, and 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 as much consensus as possible uh, will be the way forward. All right. So not talking about no easy answers. Let's yeah. um, talk about Gaza. Mm. Um, so it feels so far removed from our, from all of us, I guess, but. That was my reason for originally wanting to talk to you on the podcast because you've got family there mm. and it's become very personal. Mm. Um, what's the situation for your brother-in-law and the family now? It's completely desolate. It's um, without hope, really. Um, you know, we speak to Mohammed, uh, my brother-in-law, uh, every day. You know, Nadia, my wife, messages her brother. Um, several times throughout the day, obviously, and I try to keep in touch as much as I can. But you know, there's what can you say? You can't start the message with "I hope you're okay" or "I mm -hmm. hope you're doing well." You know, the way that we would all start our messages, all we have to do is ask: Have you guys been hurt? Are you kind of you know? Did you, you know, not quite say did you survive the night? But you know, did you manage to make it through the night okay? Is that um, how it feels that you are actually having to check in? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that, my wife is in bits. Um, and she is the strongest person I know, but she is in absolute bits because she keeps describing it that there's a feeling in the pit of her stomach that she's not going to get a response. You know, over WhatsApp, you wait for the blue ticks, you know, the two blue ticks, and you know, your message has been read. She's waiting for the day, she says, where those two blue ticks don't come up. And then she gets the phone call, and, you know, her entire family's just wiped out. And, and it's, I just feel so sad about it because you're utterly and entirely helpless. Uh, Mohammed has three children. He has two two twin boys and a daughter my my daughter's age actually. You know, he's just mm -hmm. I think she was born just kind of a month or two after my own Amal was born. So you know I can't imagine what it is. Your your natural instinct as a parent, you, you know, is to to protect your children. Um, and so if that was happening, you know, in Glasgow, then we would pick our children up and run. Mm -hmm. um, but they can't run. They've got nowhere to run. And they're completely blockaded in. So, yeah, it's horrible. It's pretty depressing. And all we're doing is hoping and, you know, I'm, I'm a person of faith and I'm praying a lot that, that they, they they survive. I mean, we talked about, you know, the dangers of social media, but do you hope that by personalising some of this and being able to say some things on social media about your brother-in-law and the family, that you're helping educate people about what's happening in Gaza? I hope so. Uh, you know, I've, I've had... a such a heartwarming response to, to to some of my my kind of messages and i put another video up yesterday just reading some of muhammad's messages um that he's been sending us on whatsapp and again they're they're utterly heartbreaking but it does i think just bring it a little bit more personal and and, and not so far removed for people um that you know my wife is just one palestinian there are there's a whole community of palestinians in scotland who've you know like my wife been born here it's their home but yet they've got family back home and in, in, in Gaza or the West Bank and, and they are suffering and um, you know I think what's so depressing about it is not just the the human tragedy but let's be honest because you know this better than I do uh, being a journalist that in a matter of days or possibly weeks this will come off the news agenda mm -hmm. but the root cause will not have been dealt with you know you continue to deal with the symptom which is the the violence um, but what you don't deal with and what we don't deal with is an international community of such a thing 
really exists. And what they don't deal with is is the root cause, and the root cause is undoubtedly um, occupation and the systemic erosion of the rights of the Palestinian people, not for years, but for decades, and the, and the ever-increasing uh, expansion of Israeli settlements. That is that is the root of the issue. And until people in the international community deal with that, then you're just going to continue to see the cycle of violence perpetuated. You know, like all the things that we've been discussing this morning, whether it be the removal of illegal immigrants, the violence related to football and the issues in the Middle East, how conscious are you that you'd be seen to be picking a side by saying some th- some of the things you say? Yeah, I'm I'm always conscious of it, but at the same time, maybe maybe it's because I've been a government minister for for almost ten years. Um, I, I think I just now start to call a spade a spade. You know, maybe you get to that point where initially in your kind of political career or ministerial career, you're quite you know super diplomatic, so you don't offend anybody. But actually, you have to call a spade a spade. You know, somebody asked me in an interview recently, you know, do you condemn the Hamas rocket fire and, and, and the innocent Israelis that have been killed? And I said, look, what an offensive question. You know, I, you know, find me a person that doesn't, you know, a right-minded person that doesn't condemn the killing, the murder, the slaughter of an innocent person. And I'll tell you that that person's a psychopath, right? Because any individual that, you know, innocent and had their life taken, you know, your heart breaks for them. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or an Arab. Uh, it doesn't matter what your faith is. You know, that is a human instinct. But what annoyed me about the question was, you're not addressing the root cause. What's happening is what we've seen happen over decades. And, and I've seen it in my own life, that um, you have an occupying force. And that's not a controversial statement. It's internationally recognized occupying force that agitates, so in this case, went into the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third, you know, most holy site in Islam during the month of Ramadan. And on top of that, also tried to evict Palestinians from their home. Again, not controversial because it is an occupied East Jerusalem, and Sheikh Jarrah. And then people, in this case Hamas, react. And what you do is you ask me about the reaction, not you, but, you know, people ask me about the reaction and say, well, why are you not condemning the reaction? Well, of course I can condemn, you know, where people are innocently killed, Israeli or otherwise. But don't bombard me with questions about the reaction. Deal with the root cause of the problem. If that means that, yeah, you're taking a side, then, you know, this is not about being nice and all getting around the table and having tea and, you know, saying that, look, everybody's equally culpable. They're not. There's an occupier and there's a group of people being occupied. That's not an equal balance. One side of this conflict has an army, has fighter jets, sophisticated weaponry, nuclear weapons, and the other side is being occupied and has, you know, rockets, which again, I strongly condemn, you know, again, the innocent loss of life, Israeli or otherwise, but that is what they have. Um, they don't have an army, they don't have sophisticated weaponry, they don't have the superpowers of the world, you know, that have their back and all of this. So you can't ask me to be balanced in a situation that is fundamentally unbalanced. doesn't make any sense to me. And to be fair, within all of this, it's about um, an approach to humanity, isn't it? Yeah, ultimately it should be. And that's why I've tried to tell people the story of my brother-in-law, that, you know, we can debate the geopolitics all day long, and I, I could do that all day long with anybody. Um, but actually, at the heart of it, you've got ultimate human tragedy. You know, I'm, you know my brother-in-law, I've got a, a father who has three children. And his mother, his elderly mother, and his wife, sorry, his elderly grandmother, 
as well as his mother and his wife, and he can't protect them. I mean, what must that feel like? Going to bed with the kids screaming. My mom's a terrible sleeper, and I know what it's like when she's screaming, you know, throughout portions of the night. But to have all three kids screaming throughout the entire night, and he's a doctor, and then has to go into the hospital to try to treat those that have been injured, and uh, you know, it's just a miserable, miserable situation. And meanwhile, <laughs> the hashtag resign Humza is trending. Um, does that kind of, when you talk about your brother-in-law and what's happening there, does that put into perspective what's happening here? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't bother me in the slightest. I mean, in the slightest. I, I wasn't actually even aware of the hashtag until uh, somebody else messaged me actually about an hour before this podcast. But it just does not bother me in the slightest. I mean, part of it is because you're right, there's a much bigger picture for us to focus on. But also... The actual issue why it doesn't bother me is because social media is genuinely not real life. And I, I was reminded about that during the campaign where, you know, I, I brought through a bill, as you know, fairly controversial in terms of the hate crime bill. Um, We've not even touched on that. I know. And, <laughs> and, 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 you know, if I went by social media prior to the election, you know, the amount of people that told me, I live in Pollock, you're not getting my vote. I've told the whole community, you're getting booted out. Right the way through to people telling me the hate crime bill, I'm not voting for you. This will be the end of you. You're this, that and the other. If I'd gone by social media, I would have just chucked in the towel. I just said, you know, this is going over a Labour candidate. But of course, on the doorsteps, when I was knocking doors, and we were allowed to knock doors for about three weeks during the campaign, and I, you know, I literally knocked hundreds. Um, hate crime bill came up twice. One from a person that's actually said they're going to vote for me, but they had some concern. Uh, one person who was not a supporter and was not going to vote for me, uh, and I wanted to express their dismay at it. Uh, and literally came up at two doors. And yeah, I increased my majority in Glasgow Pollock. And, uh, you know, uh, just reinforced that social media is not close to, to real life whatsoever, particularly Twitter. Yeah. You probably open up a whole other can of worms that we haven't got time for. But, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, people would say the same about Joe Fitzpatrick. He'd been the drugs minister, basically, and had failed and increased his majority. So but, are um, people voting for you on your record? So part, part of it must be, particularly when I'm profi high profile and I'm, you know, you know, barely out the news because of one issue or, 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 or another that I'm dealing with. But I think the issue with Joe is that, yeah, of course, all of us benefit from a party swing. I don't think any of us would, would, would suggest otherwise. But also, you know, a lot of people who, you know, wanted to see Joe no longer in the position, um, they didn't say, oh, he's a terrible guy. He's an awful individual. Actually, quite the opposite. Most people tended to say, look, we really like Joe. And you can see him as a, you know, he's a decent guy at heart, but, you know, for whatever reason, we don't think he's the right person to take this portfolio forward and this particular issue forward. And, you know, people in, 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 in Dundee, uh, West, would have, would have no doubt, you know, have seen Joe's visibility, his record on the ground. And, yeah, that's not to say we haven't been held to account. There are, you know, are many people who may not have voted for us because, you know, of, 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 of the fact they think we've not done enough on the drugs crisis. Well, you gave me a nice segue into asking the final question, which will be, will you be the uh, person to take forward the Justice Secretary portfolio? So I suppose we'll, we'll all find out in approximately 24 <laughs> hours. I, get, I mean, I get, as you can imagine, a lot of journalists um, phoning me and, and speculating and fishing. And I always tell them, look, the one who's um, being asked the question knows as much as the one asking the question. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I genuinely don't. I'd be more than happy to... To, to, to continue in the justice portfolio equally, you know, if there was a move anywhere else, you know, we serve at the behest of the first minister and, and genuinely, I mean, I'm so, 
I'm so close to the first minister as an individual, you know, not just you know as as, as my boss and the first minister, but as an individual that is genuinely, for me, it's an honour to to serve in her team. Uh, and I kind of compare it. I know it's nowhere near analogous, but I'll make the comparison anyway. But I I compare it to playing for your national you know, your football team. You know, it's like getting the call up to play. Um, and and you know, if you're a politician, then there's no greater honour than serving your country. I think it was John Smith, wasn't it? That said, all I ask for is the opportunity to serve, and that's it. That's it. So whatever you, you're given. So yeah, I, I wouldn't be hugely surprised if in 24 hours um, I was given a different portfolio um, just because of the number of colleagues of mine that have stood down in the last election. There's a lot of portfolios to fill. And at the same time... Is there one be... that you'd particularly like? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> because be... no, g- genuinely, there's... Look, I, I can give you... A, I think I can give you an exclusive mandate is that I don't think I'm going to be the Rural Affairs Cabinet Secretary. Um, I suspect as a boy from kind of representing Glasgow, but uh, other than that, uh, I suspect it could be a toss up of of, of any. Um, I would hope to still be in cabinet, but again, these are decisions for the first for first minister um, to to make. So all will be known in twenty four hours from now, I suspect. Brilliant. I detest football analogies, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> that's brilliant. Thank you very much for all your time. That was great. Not at all. Always a pleasure. As someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And do tell your friends, because everybody has an interest in politics.